For those parents who'd like their children to attend Children's Church and Preschool Praise, they can be dismissed now. And I encourage the rest of you to take out of your bulletin our sermon outline and if you have a pen or pencil to fill in some blanks and take some notes uh, as to what the Lord has taught you in His Word this morning. Sometime in the mid-1990s, I started to have pain in my chest. I remember having it so severe one morning when we were having a men's Bible study at the old Shadows restaurant that I interrupted and had Vic Gaylor take me to the emergency room because I thought I was having a heart attack. They kept me overnight, did some tests and found it was not my heart. One doctor believed it was hiatal hernia and they gave me some medicine. But it was persistent. And I remember on Thanksgiving having a horrible attack of back pain and nausea. It was finally diagnosed as gallstones. And I had to have my gallbladder taken out. Soon after that, I heard someone after that describe that a severe gallbladder attack is similar to the pain of childbirth. I made the mistake of mentioning that once in the company of some mothers. And I was wisely advised not to describe it that way because I really had no idea what that particular pain was was like. Point taken. I stopped doing that. Well, in our text today, we are going to understand that when Jesus came to this earth to become a man, He became 100% man except without sin, in order to experience everything that we experience in order to be our merciful high priest and to redeem us and to provide us with real support in all our temptations because he went through them too. Well, we, in our, we are in a sermon series in the book of Hebrews called Pressing On Because of the Supremacy of Christ. And as you'll recall, the author is writing to Jewish Christians living at the time when there was growing persecution against their faith and they're tempted to compromise. They're tempted to go back to their Old Testament practices and beliefs. And the writer of Hebrews is making the case that they cannot do this because Jesus is the only way to salvation. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is superior to the Old Testament types of prophet priest and king. He is God the Son. He's the creator. He's superior to the angels. Jesus came as the second Adam in order to reverse the curse that the first Adam brought upon mankind to restore his people to a relationship with God and to future glory. Well, last week we saw how it was fitting for God to bring many sons to glory by sending His Son to be the founder of their salvation. But He had to go through suffering. Suffering in human flesh in order to be perfected for the task. And because of this, He sanctifies. And He is the source of the sanctification of His people. He is the perfect elder brother. And He is not ashamed of us. Well, that leads us to our text today in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. 
So please follow along and remember this is the word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus far the reading of God's word. The writer is developing this theme of Christ's identification with our humanity. He's describing his liberating work and help for believers by being made like them. And so the first point that God wants us to see from this text is the deliverance for believers from Christ being made like them. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Most of the heresies in the early church had to do with the person of Christ. Arius was a preacher from Alexandria, Egypt. He taught that Jesus was less than the Almighty God. On the other hand, the Docetists, they held that Jesus was divine but only appeared as a man. Well, the first council of Nicaea in 325 settled this by affirming Jesus' full divinity and full humanity. Jesus didn't merely resemble humanity in some qualities. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the author made the full argument of Jesus being God. And in this chapter, chapter 2, he's making the argument that he's fully human. And this verse says that since Jesus' children are flesh and blood, fully human, he likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17 says he was made like his brothers in every respect. So at the incarnation, Jesus took on full humanity, a human body and a human nature without sin. And our text states that he had to do this for two important reasons. The first is it was the only way for mankind to be delivered or liberated. Liberated from what or whom? Well, first, we see his children had to be liberated from the devil. Point A, Christ destroyed the devil. Verse 14, Jesus partook of our flesh and blood as fully human that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Since the fall of mankind... Mankind has been under the power of the devil, the evil one. The devil has held mankind in slavery. He is the great accuser. He uses the law to condemn man. Natural man has no power to resist his threats because he's guilty. And he has the curse of death upon him. Not just physical, but spiritual death in hell. Well, how? How did Jesus 
liberate, liberate his people from the devil. Well, Jesus came to pay the penalty that his people owed for their sins through receiving the guilt of their sins upon himself, paying the debt that they owed by suffering hell for them, experiencing the, the curse of death for them. So Jesus defeated the devil's power to accuse and confined people to spiritual death and imprisonment in hell forever. Jesus took the weapon of eternal spiritual death out of Satan's hands. And his resurrection was proof that the devil was defeated in his power. Now ultimately the devil will be destroyed completely. But until then his power is limited. John Stott tells of a story when he was a mailman in England. And one day he had to deliver a letter to a house that had a ferocious barking dog. And the dog leapt toward him and he stood there terrified him until he realized that the dog was jerked back by a chain, a large chain that held together by a concrete stake in the ground. And so whenever Stott went to deliver a letter to that house again, he took little notice of this aggressive dog, but always kept his eye on the strong stake. And you see at the cross, Jesus destroyed the devil's power. And when the devil tries to intimidate us, we need not look at him, we need to look at Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. But this was not the only reason that Jesus partook of our humanity. The other reason the author gives is to deliver us from slavery. What slavery is mankind under? Point B, Christ destroyed slavery to the fear of death. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What do we hear a lot about in the news today, in politics, in law enforcement, in education? We hear a call for social justice and reform, to deliver people from various oppressions. In his commentary on Hebrews, Stott writes, quote, but this letter makes it abundantly clear that even if rightly all forms of oppression are removed from man's experience, he will still be crushed and broken by a far greater power. The worst tyranny is within. These verses vividly portray helpless man, the terrified victim of a triple enemy, sin, death, and the devil, unquote. Well, it is close to Halloween, and we're beginning to see all of these decorations go up. Uh, we prefer to celebrate Reformation Day since on 1517, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, and most historians believe this was the beginning of the Reformation. But there are a lot of people who are putting up all kinds of decorations pertaining to death. It's almost as if they think they can divert or minimize the horror of death by making fun of it or decorating death around them. But you know what? Mankind can't take the fear of death away. It is constantly haunting him. 
It fear, its fear is a lifelong slavery. What are people fearful about with regard to death? Well, of course, where they are going to be after they die. And when some choose not to believe in the afterlife, they're afraid of non-being. Others are afraid of separation from their loved ones. And of course, many are afraid of the pain that might be associated with dying. But deep down, God has placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. And the fear is if they will live for eternity in hell. But the Bible has the answer to this. There is a hell. And the hell is for everyone who is not perfectly righteous and has not had the debt of their sins forgiven. And of course, those are all who are without Christ as their Savior. Because God must punish sin and God demands perfect righteousness. He is holy and just in His nature. But the good news is that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. And He came to liberate us from the fear of death. From the slavery of death. He came to provide us with two needs that prevent people from heaven. Perfect righteousness and the debt or the payment of the debt of our sins. It's because Jesus became fully man and remained fully God that He was able to meet God's requirements for righteousness for us. He lived a perfect human life according to God's commandments. And He is able to give that record of righteousness, credit that record of righteousness to the account of His people. But He also came to pay our debt off. The debt that we owe for all of our sins. He did that through His perfect substitute sacrifice on the cross. Through His suffering and bleeding and dying. And he rose from the dead on the third day, demonstrating that he'd accomplished this salvation, that he had victory over the devil and death and sin for us. And he, in fact, was God the Son and the Messiah. Jesus had to be made like us to deliver us from the devil and the fear of death. But then the author gives us a second reason Jesus was made like us in humanity. And this brings us to our second point, the help for believers from Christ being made like them. Look at verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The author is bringing his reference and discourse about angels to a conclusion here, but he's making the point that as great as the angels are, they are holy created beings, as great as they are. God never did anything to save or redeem the fallen angels. Jesus didn't come to be like an angel. He came to be a human being. To help those who were spiritual descendants of Abraham. Who were the spiritual descendants of Abraham? Believers. Those that Jesus came to die for. Who had believed in Him or would believe in Him. And the author gives us three primary ways that he helps his people. Look at verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. 
And so point A in how Jesus helps his people is that he became a perfect high priest. You know, in the early church, they had two symbols that communicated a lot to believers. One was the ichthus, the fish, and that represented Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. But then the other one was the anchor. You know what the anchor represented? Well, it references Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. That says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the anchor came to symbolize Jesus' high priesthood and the certain hope that believers have that our high priest went behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies and offered an acceptable sacrifice to atone for our sins. And so anchors were carved into coffins and believers also made paintings with anchors on walls. It reminded them of their sure hope of heaven. Jesus had to come and perform his high priestly service to God on our behalf. In the Old Testament, priests represented man before God. On the high priest's robe, he wore an ephod or gold piece that had on it 12 stones, precious stones with the names of each of the tribes of Israel. And the priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies after consecrating himself and with the sacrificed blood of a perfect lamb, pour that blood on the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain. And this represented, symbolized the atonement of sin. Jesus had to become the true high priest to bear our names on his shoulders. He became a man in order to experience all of human life and all of its trials and temptations in this fallen world, and yet without sin. He was able to identify with our weaknesses, even though he did not succumb to sin. He experienced all the stages of human life and suffering to identify with us, to feel our infirmities. He was a merciful high priest. That word mercy in the Greek is interesting. It doesn't just mean feel bad for someone. If you were driving on the road and you saw a terrible accident and you saw someone lying on the side of the road and nobody assisting them and you drove by and you said, oh, I have mercy for that person. You really didn't have biblical mercy for that person. A biblical mercy is a mercy that takes action. And Jesus had mercy upon us by taking action, becoming one of us to be our high priest. And he was faithful to God for us. He lived a perfect life for us, fulfilling the commandments for us. He was the perfect Lamb of God to atone for our sins. Now, as the perfect high priest, he offered himself as an ultimate sacrifice, but why? Why was it necessary? Well, the second way he was our helper by being made like us is that he was a perfect propitiator. Say that really fast. No, don't. Point B, a perfect propitiator. 
The second half of verse 17 says, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That term propitiation means appease the wrath of God. God cannot set aside his wrath toward our sin and remain God and remain holy and just. And God's wrath is directed toward man because of his sin against his commandments, because of his rebellion. In the suffering and death of Christ on the cross, Jesus experienced that wrath for us. He absorbed it on our behalf. God's wrath was fully spent on Jesus. In other words, the equivalent of hell for every person that Jesus died for who would believe in him, Jesus experienced on the cross. It was poured out on him so that his heaven could be ours. He experienced our hell. God's wrath was exhausted and satisfied. Propitiation means there is no more wrath for those whom Christ died and believe in him. He turned aside God's wrath. The debt of our sin was paid in full. And then the final reason that Jesus became like us was to be, point C, a perfect helper. A perfect helper. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus met God's requirements for righteousness for us as a human being, and because he appeased God's wrath for us on the cross, those who receive him and repent of their sin are justified. That means they are forgiven of their sins and they're legally declared righteous before God. They're adopted into God's family. They're made new creatures in Christ. They're given the Holy Spirit and they're given the gift of eternal life in heaven forever. Jesus is uniquely able then to help his people in this life to support them and strengthen them in times of temptation and trials. Why? Because he is uniquely equipped to do this. He is God and man. He experienced what it's like to be human when confronted with suffering and temptations. And he had victory. Now, sometimes we have a hard time thinking that Jesus had the same pressures on him that we have today. Because, after all, Jesus was without sin. Jesus was God. They think, it must have been easier for him to resist temptation. Have you thought of that before? But you know, this is, it's the exact opposite is true. Jesus was truly left to his human abilities and dwelt by the Holy Spirit like we. And when he was tempted, he was tempted with the full weight of temptation. Without sin... He experienced the full strength of the temptation to sin. Only the sinless can know the full intensity of temptation. We don't because we're fallen. Let me give you an illustration that might help. Say there are two bridges on Interstate 85. They're four-lane bridges. They're exactly the same. But one of them is damaged. Damaged so much that Only one lane is open and only one car can go across a time. 
The other bridge, though, is fully functional, has all four lanes and cars are going past it all the time, full four lanes of cars and trucks. It's able to bear the complete weight. Well, we are like a damaged bridge, weakened by sin. We can buckle to much less temptation, but Jesus had the full weight of temptation on Him, and He never gave in. As the author states later in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is able to help believers in their present temptations and trials because he experienced similar ones and withstood them in his humanity. And so he not only sympathizes with us, but he does more than that. He gives us the resources that we need to resist temptation and to do God's word. He's given us his spirit. He prays for us. And knowing all this, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so what? What difference does this make? That Jesus was made like us and therefore provided us with deliverance and provides us with help. How should this impact the way that we live each day? What application can we take away from these truths? Well, let me give you three of them. First, do you live enslaved with the fear of death? Think of the busyness of people's lives, the frenzy of them looking for recreation and entertainment. It could be said that All of the busyness of life is mainly an attempt to divert our gaze from the shadow that death casts across your life. Death is not merely an event that awaits us all, but a power that rules us now. What we need is to be saved and free from the fear of death. And this is one of the things that should distinguish Believers from non-believers. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Believers have the confidence of knowing that when they physically die, they don't really die. They go to be with God in heaven. They live for eternity in heaven. God provides that way to be free from the devil's power over you and free from the slavery of the fear of death. And the only way is through the finished work of Jesus Christ, believing in Christ, trusting, relying upon His work alone for your salvation, turning from your self-righteousness and your sin and relying on Christ. You know, it's natural to have some fear of the pain of death. But for the believer, we're to view it just as a doorway, a doorway to heaven. And God will be with us all the way through. God does not want us to fear where we are going when we die. That deliverance, God provides those who believe in Jesus. 
John Calvin therefore exhorts us, quote, It is from this fear that Christ has released us by undergoing our curse and thus taking away what was feared in death. Although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. Secondly, if you're a believer, God wants you to have confidence, the confidence of His wrath is no longer against you. He wants you to know that your high priest is merciful and He's done everything necessary to provide for your righteousness and appease God's anger and wrath against you. He came to fully absorb God's wrath for your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future. In other words, if you're a believer, his, his wrath is no longer against you. It's been perfectly satisfied in Christ's suffering in his human body on the cross. But you know, it is sometimes our tendency to think that when we sin, God's going to get us. God's going to be vengeful. God's going to hold a grudge. God is going to be wrathful against us. Well, unconfessed sin for the believer can hinder a believer's experience of fellowship with God and assurance of forgiveness. But God's disposition never changes toward believers. He never turns to wrath because Jesus took all of that for us on the cross. The devil wants us to forget this. He wants us to walk around feeling like God is against us. But the truth is, we're not to be fooled. We're not to disbelieve. No matter what trials come our way, we may experience some trials and hardship, and sometimes it's because our loving Heavenly Father is disciplining us, but we are always under His love, not wrath. Thirdly, do you actively depend on Jesus' present ability to give you victory in temptations. Paul said, no temptation has overtaken us but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with a temptation provide a way of escape. Jesus stands ready and able to help us. So we need to pray. Lord, help me. Help me to constantly depend on your ability to help me through any time of temptation or suffering. Because we know that Jesus is in control of all of history, all our circumstances. Everything he does for us is for our good and for his glory. He is praying for us and his prayers are effectual. His help is not just that he sympathizes with us, His help is that He actually provides us with the resources that we need to overcome sin, to resist temptation, to go through trials and suffering. That's why He became a man. And in His flesh, He resisted all of these things and remained true to His Father. We have the same resources that Jesus had, the Spirit living within us and His Word. So Jesus not only sympathize with our weakness, but he gives us the resources we need to resist temptation.
and suffering. So we are to know that Jesus is fully adequate to get us through and to bring us to glory. He is able. And that ought to encourage all of us to have a deeper trust and renewed confidence in his unfailing ability, not only to see us through our trials, but to make us more than conquerors through them. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for taking on human flesh, becoming like us in every respect except without sin. Thank you for what that means to us. Because of that, we have victory. You overpowered the devil. You destroyed his power over us. We no longer have to fear death. Lord, we look forward to what is beyond death's door if we are believers. So help us to have that hope, that anchor. And Lord, help us to also see that you're our helper. Not only are you our high priest and did everything necessary to be our high priest, but you made propitiation for our sins. You are no longer wrathful towards your children. And you are always there to help. You provide us with the resources that we need day in and day out. So please, strengthen our confidence in your help, in your ability to enable us to have victory over sin and overcome our trials and sufferings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.